0: Our Father, it's our great blessing to be able to be in your presence this morning. We know that as believers, your spirit indwells us that wherever we may be, the spirit of the Lord is. But as we collect together, uh, we know that you have promised to be with us in a special way. And we know that you are at work here this morning to teach us from the Word of God those truths which will enable us to be better people, to be more Christ-like in our thoughts and our attitudes and our desires. Mm -hmm. Father, you recognize how we struggle day by day with our flesh, the world, the devil, those things which are constantly drawing us away from you. But we're so thankful for your faithfulness in keeping us that uh, we can echo with Paul that uh, we know whom we have believed, and we know that you're able to keep that which we have given unto you until that day when we will stand with you face to face. And we look forward to that, and Father, we have a sense that that day is coming very soon. And so we trust you to, to guide us this hour, to bless our class and each class as it is meeting at this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Again, if you would turn to the 32nd chapter of Exodus, I'd like to pick up there with Exodus chapter 32 and read the first few verses there. This whole chapter, 32nd chapter of Exodus is a powerful and profound uh, piece of scripture. And as you read through it, study through it, there's so many things God says to us there. I think we need, um, okay, John, John will get you a couple of chairs here in a minute. Let's read chapter 32, the first six verses, as we read them last week. Now when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people assembled about Aaron and said to him, Come make us a God who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we don't, do not know what has become of him. And Aaron said to them, Tear off the gold rings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. Then all of the people tore off the gold rings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he took this from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made it into a molten calf. And they said, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Now when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. So the next day they rose early and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. and The people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. They came to Aaron, of course, because not only was Aaron Moses' brother, but Aaron was the man that God had, uh, that, that Moses had left in charge while Moses was up the mountain. And he had told the Israelites, if they had any needs, to go to Aaron. This, of course, was not one of the things that he had uh, perceived could happen. But nevertheless, the people do exactly what he said. They come to Aaron, but their request, of course, is not what Moses had thought, nor what God had ordained. Now the question is, as the people came to Moses, and uh, I mean to Aaron, and as I emphasized at the end of class last time, why is it that Aaron, when he took this gold from them, what possessed him to fashion a calf? Why did he make an image in the form of a calf? Why did he not make it in the form of a man or or in the form of some other creature or an inanimate object? Well, of course, we can't really answer that question directly, but uh, as I was trying to point out just before uh, we ran out of time last week, the calf was not, the, the calf, the bull calf image was nothing new to Israel. As they had lived for 400 years in the land of Egypt, they had seen many images But one of the images that was often repeated throughout the land of Egypt, and we have in various museums around the world today uh, existing examples of these images, uh, were images of cows and bulls and of calves, which represented two great deities in ancient Egypt. The, The cow image represented Hathor. Hathor was more of a kind of a benign mother figure image, sometimes related to the to the Nile River. And we talked about that when we uh, dealt with uh, Pharaoh's dream about the seven cows that were in the river and the seven other cows that came along and ate up the fat cows, and how that in many ways related to Hathor. And then also they worshipped more profoundly the god Apis, which was the bull god. And they even had a sacred herd of bulls that was part of their worship. And so... It was nothing new to them, and the Apis, of course, was associated with fertility, as bulls and bull calves always were throughout that part of the world. In fact, if you study the history of the Phoenicians and some of the other peoples of the ancient Near East, you discover that their worship of what is known in the Old Testament as Baal or Baal, really that, of course, was an evolution down through several earlier gods that had developed in Mesopotamia. But generally speaking, if an image was formed, it was a bull, a calf, because Baal was a god of fertility. And the bull and the bull calf were almost always associated with gods of fertility. And we're going to see as we read this passage, or as we study this passage, how that works out in in what happens here. Now, I think it's important for us to know that Aaron is not here purposely in his mind creating a new God and a new concept of the divine for Israel. He is simply creating a form and calling it the God that they had followed from the land of Egypt. And in verse 4 of the passage, the people say, This is Elohim, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. This is Elohim, which, of course, as we know, is the term that was used for God way back in the very first verses of Scripture. In the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. And when Aaron saw here that the people took to the idea, he then proclaimed a feast to Yahweh, a feast to Yahweh. And so you can see in Aaron's mind, he's connecting, trying to connect Yahweh to this calf. He's trying to help Israel to focus their thoughts on this calf, but thinking of it as a representation of Yahweh. What this means is that he is not creating an occultic situation here, but a heretical situation. And I'm not implying that one is better than the other. Heresy is not much better than the occult. (laughs) no matter how you look at it, but this is what we're actually talking about here. He, he's not uh, bringing in full-blown paganism, but he's associating true faith with paganism. And, and you discover this hap- has happened historically around the world. I mean, you go to many parts of the world where the, the quote, Christian church in the generic sense of the term has come in, generally, of course, always uh, under the leadership of the Roman Catholic or the Orthodox hierarchy. And, and there's been an amalgamation there of the Christian teaching and, and whatever was there before, a pagan teaching. And, and, and you, you, the people, the native people, actually are simply attaching to themselves another aspect of faith. They are not replacing their original faith with new faith. And so what we have here is the attachment of the worship of God to a pagan image. The calf was declared to be the image of the very God who had led them from Egypt to this place. Heresy is a very, very subtle thing. Heresy is something the church has dealt with from the first century to this century. In, in the, uh, the earliest heresy that we know about was dealt with uh, as you read the 15th chapter of Acts, you have the story there of the, of the Council of Jerusalem, which was held somewhere around the year 50, in which they tried to deal with... Paul said that he was preaching Christ to the Gentiles, and coming after him were these Judaizers who told the, the Gentiles that in order to become believers in the Jewish Messiah, they had to first become Jews, which means they had to become circumcised and followers of the law before they could actually become worshipers in Christ. And so Paul ultimately brought this thing together to the council there in Jerusalem, and the church ruled that the Gentiles who became Christians did not have to become Jews first. They simply had to abstain from fornication and from the eating of blood, and otherwise they could believe in the Jewish Messiah without becoming Jews first. And that was the the ruling of the church, and that was God's ruling, because as you read through the writings of Paul, you see this over and over and over again, where Paul tells us that by grace are you saved, and that it's not through any carrying out of any you know, particular ritual, and it is not the product of tradition. It is, produ- is the product of faith, faith alone. That was the great cry of the Reformation, faith alone, faith alone is what saves us. Nothing else. There's not a thing we can do to bring about our salvation save to believe in Jesus Christ. And and heresy comes along and adds other things to it. And that of course is one of the great threats of heresy. Because heresy will will allow us to indulge in the things of the flesh with, just an, with, with a modicum of truth so it kind of salves our conscience, so that we can believe we have the faith and yet live as if we don't have true biblical faith. The Bible is our guide of how we are to live. We must live according to the Word of God. And, and to try to say there are other ways that we can live which are acceptable because we distort the teaching of the Word is to embrace heresy. The name of Yahweh, therefore the people, indulged in revelry. It it sounds almost innocent, doesn't it, here in verse 6 in English. In verse 6 it says, So the next day they rose up early, burnt, offered burnt offerings, and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And we might say, well, what's the big deal? You know, we do that at picnics, right? We eat and drink, then we get up and we play volleyball or badminton or whatever else that we might do. But the implication here of the Hebrew is that rising up, uh, that the eating and drinking involved gluttony and drunkenness and that the revelry was lewd activity. In fact, uh, Walter C. Kaiser Jr., who writes a commentary on the book of Exodus, says this, he says, after making an attempt to honor the Lord with their offerings, burnt offerings, peace offerings, okay, the people satisfied their own desires and proceeded to indulge in revelry. The verb verb sahak, which is translated revelry, signifies drunken, immoral orgies and sexual play. This was not badminton, this was not volleyball. Now, God knew this would happen before it ever happened. <laughs> I mean, when God called Moses onto the mountain, he knew Israel was going to do this. So why did he not send Moses back down the mountain earlier? It didn't take him all that long to carve the, 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 stone, uh, the, the stone tablets, right? Why did he wait? Why did he not send Moses down the mountain because he could have aborted this whole folly. The answer, I think, is in interesting scriptural teaching. Most of us know the verse in Proverbs 23, 7, where it says, For as a man thinks within himself, so is he. As a man thinks within himself, so is he. That doesn't just mean doesn't mean that as you have a passing thought that you are that. It means that that whatever is the preoccupation of your mind, whatever it is that you dwell on day after day and, and year after year, that's what you really are. The thinking of the Israelites has not been transformed. Although God has led them out of Egypt, God's led them across the Red Sea, He's led them through the desert. He's led to the base of Sinai. He's put on this great pyrotechnic display on the top of the mountain, and yet Israel is not changed yet. As a people, they're they're still thinking in the ways of the flesh. God wanted them to see themselves as they really were. Most of us, I think, know the passage in Jeremiah. It's such a powerful and profound passage it helps us to understand why it is that we don't dare trust our natural inclinations. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9 and verse 10. The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick or wicked. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, Yahweh, search the heart, I test the mind, even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. That verse is telling us, for one thing, that our deeds reflect who we are. As we think, so we do. The things we do reflect the way we think. And the scripture is telling us that in our natural heart in the flesh, our natural inclination is desperately wicked. Now, we might think, oh, but I know these sweet little old people, and uh, they don't believe in Jesus, but they do such nice things for people. The scripture says their heart is desperately wicked. See, we look on the outside, and they look like sweet little old people. But God looks on the heart, and he knows what they really are. They may not look like ghouls and ogres on the outside, but inside, that's what we all are, save for Jesus Christ. He is the only one that can transform that desperately wicked, desperately sick heart. And whenever we start depending on our desperately sick heart and our own natural inclinations, we're trusting, we're, we're walking on quicksand, exactly what we're doing. We have no solid foundation. We must walk on the rock, Christ Jesus. When left to our own devices, we will revert to evil. Most of us are aware of the fact that whenever um, someone is trying to produce a new hybrid, whether it be an animal or a plant, you've got to constantly Uh, clean up the strain and and keep focusing those uh, genetic materials that you want to produce the new hybrid. As soon as you just let it go and don't put any controls on it, it will revert to type. That's the law of nature, to revert to type. Just take a St. Bernard and a Chihuahua and a Collie and a Sermon Shepherd, all those wonderful dogs. And just put them all together in a, in a great yard and leave them there for a few generations and find out what you have. You'll just have a hodgepodge of mongrels. And if you leave them there long enough, a few, uh, through a few hundred years, they'll revert to kind of a generic type of animal. That's the reverting to type. And that's what we do. Save for God in our lives, we revert to type. And that's the fallen nature that we are save for what His Spirit does within us. And that was what Israel was facing here. You know, even we think that we're doing right, if we aren't doing it on God's guidance, it is wrong. It can't be any other way. This is highlighted in a verse in Proverbs 14 where we read, There is a way that seems right to a man, but the end is the way of death. There is a way that seems right, but the end is death. The Buddhist thinks his way is right, but the end is death. The Mohammedan thinks his way is right, but the end is death. The atheist thinks his way is right, but the end is death. And I don't mean just the physical death, which we all face, but the second death the Scripture talks about and so vividly describes at the end of the book of Revelation. The second death is the lake of fire. The only way that we can do what is truly right is to keep the flesh in subjection to the Spirit and the Spirit, our Spirit, in subjection to the Word of God. That's where in the truth lies. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And that the truth is in this book. And we must be in subjection to that book for our spirits to be able to influence our bodies to do what is right. Now, Aaron failed the test. When, when the Israelites came to Aaron, they said, We don't know about this man, Moses. As I mentioned last week, Aaron should have said, What do you mean, this man? He's my brother. But, but he makes no bones about it, as far as we know, you know from this siege of Scripture. But if Aaron had simply said to the people, Be patient. Remember the promise you made to God not six weeks ago, that you will obey his words, that you will be a part of the covenant with God, that you will be obedient. If he had reaffirmed their words and said, hang on a little longer, I think this folly would have been a but Aaron did not. And as we'll see a little bit later, we won't get to it today, but next week, Moses has a few choice words for his brother. Let's look at uh, verse, beginning at verse seven of Exodus 32. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, "Go down at once for your for notice this for your people, whom you brought up from the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have quickly turned aside from the way which I commanded them. They have made for themselves a molten calf." and have worshipped it, worshipped it, and have sacrificed to it, and said, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, they are an obstinate people. Now then, let me alone, that my anger may burn against them, that I may destroy them, and I will make of you a great nation. Then Moses entreated the Lord his God, and said, O Lord, Why doth thine anger burn against thy people, notice, thy people, whom thou hast brought out of the land of Egypt, (laughs) with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians speak, saying, With evil intent he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to destroy them from the face of the earth? Turn from thy burning anger and change thy mind about doing harm to thy people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel thy servants, to whom thou didst swear by thyself and didst say to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heavens and all this land of which I have spoken, I will give to your descendants and they shall inherit it forever. So the Lord changed his mind about the harm which he said he would do to his people. This is a profound passage. This is drama. This is high drama. This is God's man in face-to-face confrontation with God himself. Now, Moses had no way of knowing what was going on back in camp. He had left Aaron in charge, and everything was okay when he left. The people had promised to obey the words of God, and he'd only been gone for seven weeks. Didn't seem like such a long time, I'm sure to him, up there on the mountain. And so, he had no reason to be suspicious that anything foolish was happening. But God broke into this wonderful conversation that they've been having over these past weeks, and God said uh, to Moses that his people were acting foolishly. Now, why did God do that? Why did God tell him? Why didn't God just let Moses go back down the mountain and find out for himself what was going on in the camp? Well, I think there are at least two reasons that uh, God informed Moses, first of all, to prepare Moses, to prepare him in mind and heart for what he was to face so that he wouldn't be totally shattered. I mean, he'd been on the mountaintop, literally on the mountaintop with God. I mean, the scripture will tell us that his face glowed later on from being up there. He'd been in the presence of God, and now he's coming down into the valley Literally, in, into hell. God knew that he'd be shattered if, when he came down off the mountain, he discovered that the people who were acting like Moses never taught him a thing. He knew that Moses might either flip out or just simply say, Forget this whole thing. I'm going back herding sheep. At least they follow. <laughs> if he suddenly discovered, that all of that emotional, physical, and spiritual energy he had poured into this people for a year had been for naught. God knew Moses. We have to be careful we don't put Moses on some kind of a podium someplace or pedestal and look upon him as, as a superhuman. He was not. He was flesh and blood as you and I are. Just as James talks about Elijah and says, you know, Elijah was able to keep it from raining for three and a half years, and yet Elijah was just as you and I are. Just put yourself in that place. You poured all your energy into these people. And you just go away for a little bit, you come back and they've forgotten everything. They're acting exactly the opposite. I mean, they're acting worse than they were acting in Egypt. Then, secondly, and I think more importantly, his purpose was to teach Moses the crucial importance of intercession. If there is nothing else you can do for someone, you can pray for them. If you cannot help them physically in their needs, you you can't heal them in their sickness, you can't provide for them necessarily maybe in their their financial need, you you can't, whatever it might be, you can't do those things, but you can pray. I can pray. That's what we're called upon to do. You ever notice how hard praying is? Do you know why it's so hard? Because the enemy does not want you to do it. Because that's the principal way by which he is defeated and he will fight it, he will belittle it, he, he will make it as if it's insignificant, unimportant, why bother? God's got his own business he's doing anyway, doesn't matter what you say. I mean, the, the church was was infused with this a couple hundred years ago in America. In fact, our, our, our whole nation was swept over the, with the philosophy of the Enlightenment and Christianity was bent into the concept of deism in the mind of many. You know, that, that God just set the whole thing going and he's off doing his own thing and, and prayer is just an exercise in flowery speech. It doesn't really make any difference. Well, see, that's satanic. Because the scripture clearly teaches us that where two of you agree together as touching anything, God will do it. Now, he may not do exactly as you verbalize to him to do, but he will answer your prayer. And you are helping him You are cooperating with his plan in fulfilling what he chooses to do. And that's exactly what God is teaching Moses here. By praying for his people, he was learning to love his people as he had never loved them before. It's really hard to pray earnestly for someone and really hate them. There's something funny with your prayer, if that's the truth. But as you love someone, your, your heart goes out to them and you learn to love them and care for them. And God was deepening Moses' commitment to his people. And why was Moses, you know, when Moses gets down off the mountain, why is he so angry with the people? Is it because he hated them? No, it's because he loved them. This is going to prepare him to lead his people through more difficult circumstances than even this in the years ahead. I mean, they're, they're facing 39 years in the wilderness. Some really difficult things are coming up. And so Moses is being prepared for this. Yes, thank you. If there needs to be more open, open them. <laughs> <laughs> now, there's a very important concept here in this passage. We should not view this as the pious man Moses pleading with a God who's kind of lost vision of everything because he is so angry. And, and God is just gonna torch the whole lot and start over with Moses here. You've got a wife, Moses. You've got a couple of kids. We'll start over with you and create a, another whole nation. I, I think it's important for us to, to note, it is not our natural inclination to be intercessors. It is not our natural inclination. And it was not Moses' natural inclination either. It was not his first thought to fall on his knees and pray for his people. It was the Spirit of God in Moses that converted him into an intercessor. You see, God intercedes and God makes us intercessors. If you or I ever effectively intercede for someone else, it is God's Spirit interceding through you and through me on their behalf. It is not any work that we have done by our great praying ability. Let me read from Romans chapter 8. Romans eight twenty-six. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. That is the key to intercession. The Spirit of God interceding through us According to the will of God. With groanings too deep to be uttered, I don't know. I I think it's true for all of us when we've really gotten down to seriously pray for someone, the words we say sometimes just sound so shallow and so trite compared to the need. We don't even know how to pray for 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 God to do things. But in our heart is this yearning for God to intercede. And that's the real prayer. The real prayer is our hearts joining together in concern that God bring his purpose to bear in this circumstance or in this life or in this situation, whatever our words might be. Some people are better with words than others. Some people can string words together and it sounds so good, and others put them together and it sounds so trite. But if the hearts are united together in earnest intercession, those words are are meaningless as far as, As actually being the real prayer. Sometimes it's helpful to just sit together as a group of people with a common concern of whatever the need is and and maybe not even voice it vocally sometimes because there's prayer going up. Moses, if you'll notice this passage, does not base his intercession upon the worth of the goodness of the people. He does not say, oh, God, these are such wonderful people, really? Um, Really and truly, they're good. No, Moses bases his intercession on God. He bases his intercession, first of all, on the honor of God's name. He says, the Egyptians will despise you. Even though you could work great signs and wonders, you can't even preserve your people here in the wilderness. You can't even have them follow you. You have to zap them all. They'll think even more poorly of you than they did before. And then secondly, he said, also because you have made a promise. You have made a promise to Abraham. You confirmed it to Isaac and you confirmed it to Jacob that you would raise up of them a great nation and you would give to them this land. This is your promise, O God. And even if those people are currently unfaithful, you cannot be unfaithful to your promise for your own sake, for the sake of your name and for the sake of the people to whom you made that promise. You must be faithful to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob because of the promise you had made." Now, where does Moses get those ideas? God puts it in his mind. You know, you, you, you ever realize, uh, I'm sure you have, that you and I cannot take credit for anything that, that, that accomplishes God's purpose? Amen. I, I cannot say, oh God, I have done this great thing for you, and I know I've earned my, my brownie point in your kingdom. No. We are God's instruments. We are his channels. And it is our privilege to be used by him. Because as soon as we declare that we've done it at our own strength, we have begun to earn the right of God's favor. And the scripture makes it abundantly clear that there is not a thing you or I can do to earn God's favor. It's a gift that God gives us. He even gives us the faith to believe him. Now, there's there's a really important concept here we need to understand correctly. Let me read verse 14 again. So the Lord changed his mind about the harm which he said he would do to his people. Now, as you read that straight out in English, it sounds like God said, "Eh, okay, I think you're right, Moses. Maybe I better not wipe them out now. I think maybe I'll just... One of the attributes of God is immutability. That is changelessness. For God to change his mind would be to violate his character, to violate his very nature. It is impossible for God to change his mind, as we understand changing his mind. So what we're looking at here is from the human perspective, the appearance of God changing his mind. Let me read from Numbers chapter 23, verse 19. God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? Do you know why God can't change his mind? Because he could never have a better idea. He has the perfect idea to start with. He is omniscient. That means he knows all things. How nice it would be sometimes to have a little piece of omniscience, wouldn't it? When you're facing this dilemma and you don't know which fork of the road to take or whether to pick up the fork in the road, as some would say, it's not possible for God to change his mind or to change his actions from what he really intended to do. So what we have here is God intending to spare Israel all along. But he was testing Moses to see uh, what kind of material Moses was. He was making Moses into the man that Moses needed to be in order to serve God in the days ahead because Moses was facing 39 more years of leading this recalcitrant, stiff-necked people through the wilderness. How would you like that job? 39 more years. You're going to have to lead 2 million people who don't want to follow through a terrible environment. In obedience, in obedience to a God that most of them don't yet believe in. We have an interesting New Testament parallel in John chapter 6. John chapter 6, reading at verse 4. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews was at hand. Jesus therefore, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a great multitude was coming to him, said to Philip, where are we to buy bread that these may eat? And this he was saying to test him, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. God was testing Moses. Moses, what if I were to wipe these people out and to raise up a new nation from you? Now Moses could have thought, hmm, I would be the great patriarch of this nation then. Hmm. (laughs) No. Moses was open to the Spirit of God to come upon him and say, O Lord, be it far from you to dishonor your name and to dishonor the promise you had made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob by doing this. Forgive this people of their iniquity. There will be many other great examples in the Old Testament of men who would intercede on behalf of their people. But certainly Moses set the pattern. But again, by the inspiration of the Spirit of the living God. And by application, we need to recognize that when we intercede for one another, it is not because we are worthy to do so, but because we are honored to do so. And it is because we are needed to do so. If God were to have millions and millions of deep intercessors in the world today, we'd live in a different world. But Satan has convinced most of us that intercession is either too hard to do or, or no, there's no point in it. There, there's a place to which we can press theology to the point where we're excused from doing anything. You know. If we go to the point where God has ordained everything down to the gnat's eyelash and it's going to happen exactly according to his ordination, irrespective of what we do, then why bother? It's one of the reasons why the Calvinist church was not a missionary church. But we have to understand that God has called us to be a part of his plan. And he's honored us to be a part of that through intercession. And and for one thing, you and I cannot, let's say, go to Central Africa to preach the word, but we can pray for those who have gone to Central Africa to preach the word. And God, for some reason, has chosen to make their success dependent upon our intercession. We don't intercede, they don't succeed. And it's not because they are not called people, and it's not because they are not open to God's service. It's because it's a cooperative thing. We're all in this together. And prayer is one of the greatest expressions of that cooperativeness of the church. And Satan's managed to convince us to a great deal, that the church is nothing but gathering together on Sunday morning and singing a few songs and listening to a few announcements and listening to a sermon and going home and watching football and forgetting everything that happened, rather than making us a people committed to one another throughout the week in prayer and fellowship and whatever else ought to take place, and and praying for what happens on Sunday morning, you know. Do do we pray that whatever goes on in this room is is what God wants to do? Whatever goes on in that big room over there is what God wants to do? If we don't, it just becomes an exercise in uh, religiosity. But it becomes real as we pray. And that's what's going to change this nation. And that's what changes this man, Moses. Moses is not even yet ready to write down the, the Pentateuch. All of what's happening in his life is making him into the person that can sit there and with the Spirit of God washing over his heart and mind, write Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Let me read the next passage here in Exodus 32. We won't be able to do anything with it this morning, but I want it to be on our minds as we think about next week. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets which were written on both sides. They were written on one side and the other. And the tablets were God's work, and the writing was God's writing engraved on the tablets. Now when Joshua heard the sound of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there is a sound of war in the camp. But he, that is Moses said, is not the sound of a cry of triumph. Nor is it the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing I hear. And he doesn't mean, when he says that, that they're singing the psalms or some such thing. Of course, the psalms hadn't been written yet. And it came about as soon as Moses came near the camp, that he saw the calf and the dancing. And Moses' anger burned, and he threw the tablets from his hands and shattered them at the foot of the mountain. And he took the calf, which they had made, and burned it with fire, ground it to powder, scattered it over the surface of the water, and made the sons of Israel drink it. This too is a powerful passage, and uh, we'll focus on it next week.